The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. No one connected with this podcast can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views expressed are those of the podcaster and do not represent the opinions of any other person or entity. These views are subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. Thank you all for tuning in. In this episode, I'm going to look at what I call another case law classic. It comes courtesy of BC's top court and is cited as R.V. Baddock, 2008, BCCA 48. A link to the case can be found in the episode notes. So let's leap right in. A police officer received information from a confidential informer who the officer believed to be credible. This informer had provided information to the officer in the past that had been instrumental in other arrests, including providing phone numbers that were associated with dial-a-dope operations and through which the officer was able to set up drug purchases. Acting on information provided by the informer, the officer called a phone number believed to be a dial-a-dope line and was able to engage in a dialogue about a drug transaction with the person who answered the phone. The officer arranged to purchase one half gram of cocaine. The officer set up a meet with a suspected drug dealer that was to take place 15 minutes after the call ended. The dealer was to attend a McDonald's restaurant in a small white car. This particular McDonald's was located in a small mall with other stores. The officer attended to the area of the McDonald's and observed a small white Honda Civic arrive within the time expected. The Honda parked in front of the McDonald's restaurant, and there were two occupants in the car, its driver, later identified as Christopher Baddock, and a passenger. As he observed the car, the officer noted that neither the driver or the passenger got out of the vehicle. They did not attend at any of the stores or the McDonald's. After the car remained parked for about two minutes, it left the mall. The police officer followed the car and pulled it over. He believed that the occupants of the car were associated with the telephone call he had earlier made to the suspected Dalladope number. As he approached the car, the officer had his cell phone preset to call the same number he had just used in conversing with the person to arrange the drug buy. The officer called the drug line as he approached the driver's side window of the car and noted the phone Baddock was holding in his hand was vibrating. Baddock then turned his cell phone off. The officer arrested Baddock and searched the Honda. In the Honda, just under one gram of cocaine was found in a coin compartment between the steering wheel and the driver's side door, and underneath a mat in the driver's side area of the vehicle. The officer turned Baddock's cell phone back on following his arrest, and two incoming calls were answered from people seeking to purchase drugs. At his trial in B.C. Supreme Court, Baddock focused on the legality of his arrest. He claimed the officer had insufficient objective grounds upon which to base it. As for the search of the car, Baddock tried to persuade the judge that the search was unreasonable because it did not follow a lawful arrest. Baddock argued that the best the officer had was a reasonable suspicion that he was involved in a crime such that only an investigative detention and a search for officer safety could be authorized. Because the search exceeded what would be permissible for a safety search incident to detention, it was an unreasonable search, breached Section 8 of the Charter, and the evidence ought to be excluded under Section 24-2. As we know, without the drug evidence, an acquittal would follow. 
but the trial judge disagreed with Baddock's position. First, the judge found the officer clearly had the required subjective belief to make the arrest. The officer genuinely believed he had the necessary reasonable grounds to do so. Second, the judge found the arrest was objectively well-founded in the circumstances. Here is what the trial judge said, quote, In viewing this from an objective point of view, the informant's information had face validity in that it had assisted the police in other investigations. But most importantly, it was tested on phoning the telephone number provided and the ability through that phone call to engage in a drug transaction. That, I think, is strong confirmation that the information that the informant provided was reliable. Subsequent to that, the appearance of the small white car, in this case the white Honda, within the time expected, the fact that the vehicle didn't attend for any apparent purpose of attending at any of the stores in the mall, but rather parked for a short time and then drove off, added to the circumstances implicating the accused. Subsequent pulling over of the vehicle was, in my view, authorized as an authorized detention. The suspicion at that point was heightened to reasonable and probable grounds on the phoning to the original number that resulted in the drug transaction and the police officer's observation of the accused telephone receiving a call. End quote. Think of it this way. The officer's reasonable suspicion that validated and justified Baddock's initial detention, that is to pull the vehicle over, was heightened or elevated to reasonable grounds for arrest when the original phone number for arranging the drug transaction was called and the officer saw Baddock's telephone receiving a call. Remember, after the officer redialed the drug purchase line, he saw Baddock's phone, which Baddock was holding, vibrating. Now, the officer did not take steps to call Baddock's cell phone back after he had seized it to confirm that the number he dialed as he approached the car was, in fact, connected to the cell phone Baddock had been holding. The officer even agreed in his testimony that when he redialed the drug line number, some other person might have called Baddock's phone at about the same time. The officer acknowledged that when he called the drug line, it might have been a simple coincidence that Baddock's phone vibrated because it was receiving a phone call from a different number at the same time. But to the judge, such a coincidence was too unlikely, and it didn't really matter anyways. Such a possibility did not render the officer's grounds for arrest objectively unreasonable. Since the arrest was lawful, the search of the vehicle for evidence related to the arrest was reasonable and the evidence was admissible. Lawful arrest. Checkmark. Lawful search. Checkmark. Evidence admissible. Checkmark. An expert drug opinion report that the drugs were possessed for the purpose of trafficking was also entered as evidence. The judge ruled that the Crown had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Baddock possessed the cocaine that was found closest to where he was sitting was for the purpose of trafficking and he was convicted of PPT under Section 5 sub 2 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Baddock didn't accept the trial judge's decision, so he challenged it to a three-judge panel of the B.C. Court of Appeal. He wanted the drug evidence tossed because, in his view, his rights under Section 8, Unreasonable Search or Seizure, and Section 9, Arbitrary Detention, had been breached when his vehicle was stopped and he was arrested and searched. He made the same arguments he made earlier, claiming the trial judge erred in his analysis and ruling as he did. So how did the Court of Appeal see all of this shaking out? Well, it proceeded in a linear fashion, starting with the detention or stopping of the car, to the arrest, through to the search which resulted in the recovery of the drugs. This is how most investigations conducted by the police are unwound. Start at the beginning and work your way through to the end, carefully examining each stage of police action. 
In RV Nolet, the Supreme Court of Canada referred to this as a step-by-step approach. Quote, it is necessary for a court to proceed step-by-step through the interactions of the police and the accused from the initial stop onwards to determine whether, as the situation developed, the police stayed within their authority having regard to the information lawfully obtained at each stage of their inquiry, End quote. If new information emerges during the stop, the police may be entitled to proceed further, perhaps arresting an individual as the case may be, or end their inquiries and allow the person to resume their journey. So let's first start with the car stop. How did BC's top court see it? Well, the Court of Appeal found it was a lawful investigative detention. The officer had the necessary reasonable grounds to detain the Honda and its occupants for investigation. The officer reasonably suspected the driver was involved in dial doping which was the crime under investigation. This suspicion, as the trial judge found, was subjectively held by the officer and was objectively reasonable. It was also reasonably necessary in the circumstances to stop the car and detain Baddock. So the Court of Appeal had no problem with the stop. Now what about the arrest? Well, it was solid too. The test for making a valid arrest without a warrant under Section 495 of the Criminal Code requires an arresting officer to subjectively have reasonable grounds for the arrest, and those grounds must, in addition, be justifiable from an objective point of view. A reasonable person placed in the position of the officer must be able to conclude that there were indeed reasonable grounds for the arrest, and the police need not demonstrate anything more than reasonable grounds. There is no need to establish a prima facie case for conviction before making an arrest. In this case, there was no dispute about the officer's subjective belief that the driver of the vehicle had committed an offense. The officer believed he had enough, but was the officer's subjective belief objectively reasonable? Remember, this is where that hypothetical reasonable person must view the facts and circumstances through the lens of the arresting officer's training and experience. Baddock's approach in undermining the officer's reasonable grounds for arrest was to again attack the redialing of the drug line. His lawyer suggested that the trial judge drew the wrong inference about Baddock's cell phone receiving the officer's call when he redialed the number as he approached the vehicle. Remember, the officer acknowledged in his testimony that it was possible, though unlikely, that Baddock received a call from another telephone at the time when the officer walked up to the car but the Court of Appeal found it was open to the trial judge to draw the inference he did. This type of challenge to an officer's reasonable grounds is not unusual. Defense lawyers will often suggest that there is an innocent explanation for a fact relied upon by an officer. But reasonable grounds does not require an officer to eliminate all other explanations. Reasonable grounds is not about being right or wrong, accurate or inaccurate, correct or incorrect. It's about being reasonable. So here, it was reasonable to infer that the number the officer redialed was the number that caused the phone in Baddock's hand to vibrate. Now, what about the vehicle search? Well, this is simple. If an arrest is lawful, the police may search a vehicle if the object or purpose of the search is related to the reasons or grounds for the arrest. Since the arrest was lawful in this case, the search of the Honda for evidence related to dollar doping following the arrest was also lawful. There was no Section 8 charter breach. So what can we learn from this case and others like it? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. At the time the officer pulled Baddock's car over, the officer was authorized to detain him for investigative purposes on the basis of a reasonable suspicion. As a result, there was no Section 9 breach in relation to that investigative detention. I pause to note here that the officer did not purport to stop the car on the basis of some sort of traffic reason. 
whether an observed infraction or a random stop, perhaps to check a driver's license. This was an investigative detention into criminal activity from the outset. Then, when the officer redialed the drug line and saw Baddock's phone vibrating, this raised the officer's reasonable suspicion to a reasonable belief upon which to arrest him. Remember, a reasonable suspicion is a lesser but included standard of a reasonable belief. The purpose of a brief investigative detention is to investigate. At some point, an officer's reasonable suspicion will be 1. Reduced or dispelled, number 2. Remain unchanged, or 3. Raised to the level of belief required for an arrest. If an officer's reasonable suspicion is dispelled, the person must be released. If the suspicion is not dispelled but remains at the level of a reasonable suspicion, the person must also be released at some point because the person cannot be detained indefinitely. Investigative detentions are permissible only for a brief period of time. So at some point, you will need to cut the person loose. You need to let them go. Maybe further investigation without a continued detention will permit you to later locate your suspect and make an arrest. But you have to let the person go at some point. Now, the BC Court of Appeal didn't get into what a brief investigative detention would entail. It didn't have to. After all, the officer's reasonable grounds were elevated from suspicion to belief in a matter of moments. Pretty much as long as it took for him to get to the driver's door where he saw the phone vibrating. In other cases, however, at what point a detention goes beyond what would be considered brief may be difficult to determine because the courts have not provided any bright-line rules of just how long an investigative detention can last. For example, No court has said, you only have 10 minutes and anything beyond 10 minutes is not brief, or 15 minutes, or 20 minutes. I think you get my point. You don't start a timer and when the alarm goes off, you have to end your detention. What is brief will depend on the totality of the circumstances. I think the best the courts have had to offer is the guidance provided by the Ontario Court of Appeal in a case cited as R.V. Barclay, where it tried to enlighten the reader of its decision to what it means to be brief. Here is how the appellate court in Barclay put it, quote, The permitted duration of an investigative detention is determined by considering whether the interference with the suspect's liberty interest by his continuing detention was more intrusive than was reasonably necessary to perform the officer's duty, having particular regard to the seriousness of the risk to public or individual safety. But all investigative detentions must be brief because the state interference with the individual's liberty rests on a reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, a much lower standard than the reasonable and probable grounds needed for an arrest. The relatively low reasonable suspicion standard cannot constitutionally sustain a detention that is not brief. The purpose of the brief detention contemplated under the investigative detention power is to allow the police to take investigative steps that are readily at hand to confirm their suspicion and arrest the suspect, or, if the suspicion is not confirmed, release the suspect. The word brief is descriptive and not quantitative. It describes a range of time and not a precise time limit. The range, however, has temporal limits and cannot expand indefinitely to accommodate any length of time required by the police to reasonably and expeditiously carry out a police investigation. End quote. It's pretty obvious. Being brief does not mean forever how long it takes to complete your investigation. You can't even hold someone under arrest for that long. You have to bring them before a justice without unreasonable delay and in any event within 24 hours in most cases. 
The court then went on to identify some factors to consider in assessing whether the duration of an investigative detention exceeded what would be constitutionally permissible. The analysis is case-specific and will depend on all of the circumstances. Some of the relevant factors the Court of Appeal identified were the following, and again I quote, Number one, the intrusiveness of the detention. For example, handcuffing the suspect behind his or her back and placing the suspect in a police cruiser or diverting the suspect from his intended path by taking him to the police detachment to continue the investigation will generally be more intrusive of the suspect's liberty interest than asking him questions at the point of initial detention. The more intrusive the detention is to the suspect's liberty interest, the more closely its duration will be scrutinized. Number two, the nature of the suspected criminal offense. If the suspected offense is not serious, the permitted duration will probably be at the shorter end of brief. Number three, the complexity of the investigation. If the investigation is not complex, one would expect that police questioning of the suspect would not reasonably need to be lengthy, and the permitted duration will probably be at the shorter end of brief. However, if the investigation of the suspected criminal offense is complex, its complexity will only justify a longer permitted duration within the range of brief to the extent it is causally linked to the duration of the detention. Number four, any immediate public or individual safety concerns. Immediate public or individual safety concerns may justify a permitted duration at the longer end of brief. Number five, the ability of the police to effectively carry out the investigation without continuing the detention of the suspect. If there are other reasonable means of continuing the investigation without detaining the suspect, the continued detention of the suspect would likely render continued detention unconstitutional. Number six, the lack of police diligence. For example, if a sniffer dog were immediately available and yet the police detained the suspect for 20 minutes before employing the dog to confirm or refute their suspicion, then, depending on all of the other relevant factors, the interference with the suspect's liberty interest as a result of the lack of police diligence might render the delay unconstitutional. And finally, number seven, the lack of immediate availability of the required investigative tools. On the other hand, depending on all of the other relevant factors, if a sniffer dog were made available as soon as practicable and employed as soon as available, the same 20-minute detention might fall within the range of time that can be characterized as a brief detention, end quote. So just to recap, the seven factors offered by the Ontario Court of Appeal in Barclay were, number one, the intrusiveness of the detention, number two, the nature of the suspected criminal offense, number three, the complexity of the investigation, number four, any immediate public or individual safety concerns, number five, the ability of the police to effectively carry out the investigation without continuing the detention of the suspect, number six, the lack of police diligence, and number seven, the lack of immediate availability of the required investigative tools. Now back to Baddock. The officer's further investigation elevated his reasonable suspicion of drug trafficking, which permitted an investigative detention, to a reasonable belief of drug trafficking, which authorized an arrest. And just what was that further investigation? He redialed the Daladope line he had called to arrange the purchase of cocaine in the first place. And upon seeing Baddock's cell phone vibrating, it was reasonable for the officer to infer it was receiving the officer's call such that the officer had reasonable grounds to believe Baddock was arrestable as a drug trafficker. Baddock's arrest was based on reasonable grounds. It was not arbitrary. 
And since the arrest was lawful, the search of the Honda incidental to that lawful arrest was reasonable. Thus, there was no Section 8 breach. At the end of all of this, the BC Court of Appeal concluded that the trial judge made no mistakes in finding there were no charter violations related to the vehicle stop, Paddock's detention, his arrest, or the search of the vehicle that followed. So what was the ultimate end result? Well, Baddock's appeal was dismissed and his conviction of PPT cocaine was upheld. If you think this podcast would interest others, please share it. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.